Thank you, Glennis, for reading God's word to us this morning. Good morning, if you don't know me. My name's Matt, and I'm one of the ministers here. And uh, just a couple things before I begin. I want to remind you that there is no question time after the sermon uh, this morning. And secondly, uh, there's a few occasions during the year when our kids in kids' church study the same book as us. And this is happening at the moment. They're studying Ruth next door. And so you might like to uh, take this opportunity to ask them. They're studying Ruth chapter 2. So you might like to ask the kids next door what they learned uh, from the book of Ruth uh, over the next couple weeks. Well, if you're new or visiting here, uh, thanks for coming. I want to welcome you here. It just happens that my parents are up from Melbourne this weekend, and uh, so it's great to have them here. And I thought I would uh, begin by telling you a story that my dad told to me a number of years ago. Uh, and this story was when he was up uh, working in Papua New Guinea. And while he was up in Papua New Guinea, he had a workman who worked under him. And one Monday morning, before he began work, he asked one of them what he had done over the weekend. And to my dad's surprise, his workman said that he had gotten married. My dad didn't know anything about this. He had been expecting to hear about the usual things about working in the garden and maybe going fishing or some of the other things that they might have done to socialize over the weekend. So my dad was quite shocked. And it turned out that this marriage had been quite an ordeal like most marriages are in Papua New Guinea. See, first of all, the bride price has to be agreed on by both sides of the family. The bride price is de determined by the value of the bride. And this has to do with things like her education and her abilities, and everything's taken into consideration, and so a bride price is... Uh, agreed upon, and this might be something like 3,000 kina and five pigs. And in some instances, the pigs are more valuable than women and children and more valuable than the money. And so only after the bride price is agreed upon can other arrangements be made for the wedding. Now, the wedding isn't as simple as you would expect either, because oftentimes there's two different weddings. The first wedding is the wedding in the village, and then the second wedding is the wedding in the church. And so the wedding in the village is their traditional wedding where they would uh, all come, and there would be a feast, there would be cultural singing and dancing. And then after this, the bride and groom would just move into the groom's house, and then at some other time, they may build themselves a little house of their own. And after all this is done, then they would say, hey, we might like to get married in a church as well. So let's start planning that wedding. And that wedding in the church is more like we would expect to have, you know, a wedding cake and a white dress and things like that. And I tell you the story because Ruth chapter 3 requires us to uh, consider and recognize that there are cultural differences. See, in all cultures, there's priority that's given to particular things, particular customs and behaviors. And what makes cultures different is that these priorities, the priority they place on particular things, 
aren't the same as other cultures. They aren't the same as ours. When it comes to marriage in PNG, the bride price is more important than the wedding itself. The traditional wedding is more important than the church wedding. The pigs are more important than the money. And so what we consider important in our culture can be quite different from what others may consider important. And so the same goes for the proposal we find here in Ruth chapter 3. And what stands out for me in the book of Ruth, actually, is that almost all of chapter 2, 3, and 4, 53 verses, are actually given to what happens before the wedding. And if you flip over to chapter 4, verse 13, there is a fraction of a verse that is given to the wedding itself. It's almost as if the wedding is an afterthought. Chapter 4, 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. That's it. So you could almost imagine Boaz going into work on a Monday morning and being asked what he did over the weekend and him saying to his workmen, I got married. But let me tell you the story of what happened before the marriage because that is what's important. Let's pray because we all need help to understand the cultural significance of this passage. And so would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us to approach your word with the willingness for it to change the way we think and act. We humbly ask for wisdom to examine your word today. Help us to approach the cultural and historical setting of this book and through your spirit, guide us to understand how this scripture points to your son Jesus who shows us your redeeming love through his death and resurrection. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I really think it's important that we recap the story before we just jump into chapter 3. So in chapter 1, the author is careful to explain to us that this story takes place while the judges ruled. Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons leave Jerusalem because of a famine, and they go to Moab. They leave God's promised land, and they go to the land of their enemies. And while in Moab, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies, her two sons marry Moabite women, and then they also, the two sons also die. It's a great start to a story. Naomi, the widow, hears that the famine is over, and heads back to Jerusalem, back to the land that God had promised to his people. Because she has nothing to offer them, Naomi uh, tells her daughter-in-laws to go back to their people. And Naomi returns to Jerusalem, Jerusalem angry, bitter, and empty. Ruth, who is Naomi's daughter-in-law, returns with Naomi and commits herself to Naomi's God. Read with me chapter 1, verse 16 again, where Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will, will I be buried. 
May the Lord do so to me, and more so, more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so the two of them end back up in Jerusalem. Naomi ends up very bitter. She comes back empty, and she blames this all on God. She says, the Almighty has brought calamity on me. We also read that they also come back at the beginning of the barley harvest. And two weeks ago, Matt Alder reminded us that God's plan for Naomi and Ruth is so much greater than they can ever see or will ever know. And how true is that for us here today as well? God's plan is so much greater than we can see or we will ever know. <coughs> Despite our circumstances, God is working all things for our good and for his glory. And remember this verse, it'll, you'll see it up on the screen from 2 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians 4.16. It puts it this way. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we not look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are transient, sorry, not for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then we get to chapter 2 where we see this light momentary affliction that Naomi and Ruth face shifts to becoming blessing beyond what they could ever imagine because of God's grace and mercy. And so through the next two chapters, we are shown a picture of how God's redeeming love is consistent throughout all of history, even during this time of emptiness for Naomi. God's redeeming love is evident in the way that he cares for his people. And so in chapter 2, we begin by giving information about a relative of Naomi's husband, a relative described as, in chapter 2, verse 1, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, a man named Boaz. Naomi and Ruth discuss what they're going to do in their hopeless situation, and they find themselves, uh, that they find themselves in, and Naomi gives permission for Ruth to go glean in the fields. And now, as readers, we're meant to realize that this is a dangerous position that Ruth is going to be in. As a, Mo a Moabite woman, Ruth was a nobody. She wasn't even a servant. She could have been taken advantage of in any and every possible way. But by God's providence and care, she ends up gleaning the ears of grain in the fields belonging to Boaz. And he eventually notices her. And so Boaz provides for her one of her major needs of food. 
And when Ruth questions Boaz about why he is being so generous to her, remembering that she is a Moabite woman, Boaz responds with these words. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 11. But Boaz answers her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you have left your father and mother and your native land and come to a people that did not, that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Take notice of that phrase that Boaz uses, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, Boaz understands Ruth's predicament and knows that she has come to find refuge under the Lord's wings. And last week, Ian so helpfully showed us how Boaz demonstrates mercy and kindness to Ruth. The author here is showing us the mercy and kindness of God. And so we get to chapter 3, and the structure of chapter 3 is very similar to that of chapter 2. We have this conversation between Ruth and Naomi, and then Ruth goes to Boaz, and then she returns at the end, and there's another conversation between Ruth and Naomi. And as we look at chapter 3, it begins with this conversation between Naomi and Ruth. Read with me from verse 1. Naomi, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now notice with me quickly, this isn't the first time that Naomi has asked for rest for Ruth. In chapter 1, verse 9, we read as well, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of of her husband. Here in chapter 1, Naomi prays that Ruth and Orpah might find rest. And this may be a way that Naomi is kind of admitting to her participation, you know, her hand in the hardships that her daughter-in-laws have found themselves in. But it's clearly rest that Naomi deeply desires for Ruth to find. She doesn't want Ruth to suffer. So Naomi here comes up with a plan to help her find rest. Let's have a look at this plan, starting from verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Here Naomi instructs Ruth that now is the time to stop mourning, stop worrying about her losses, and start preparing and start presenting herself as someone who is re ready to begin again. She says, wash and put on expensive ointment, get your best cloak and prepare yourself for what is to come. 
And not only does Naomi tell Ruth to be ready, but Naomi also knows how to use Boaz's circumstances and his activities for their advantage. She knows exactly what's going to happen, and she knew when he would be eating and drinking at the threshing floor. And this here is where our cultural mindset really has to work hard. Ruth does exactly what Naomi tells her to do. She waits until Boaz has had plenty to eat and drink. And after he lays down at the end of a heap of grain, he goes to sleep. Ruth softly uncovers his feet and lays down. And then at midnight, Boaz wakes up startled because there's a woman at his feet. And he says, who are you? To which Ruth replies, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. To which Boaz replies, read with me in verse 10. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. <clears throat> for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. See, in this chapter, we see the actions of a worthy man with a worthy woman. And so like me, you may have a lot of questions about this passage. Questions like, why did this encounter take place at the threshing floor? After all, this would be a place where men were away from their wives and no doubt a place for potential prostitution. Why did Ruth wait? until he was filled with food and drink. Does this mean she was waiting for Boaz to be drunk with wine so that he would recognize her or so that he would do something that he might regret later? Was she trying to trick him? Why did she wait until he was asleep and then uncover his feet? Is this some sort of a sexual advance? Why are we told that this encounter happens in a way that we know could potentially lead to sexual misconduct? And if there wasn't any sexual misconduct, if it was all innocent, then why doesn't the author just say that? What the author is trying to get us to understand is that as we read this book, we are meant to continually remember that this is all happening in the time when the judges ruled, when every man did what was right in their own eyes. And so the author wants us to ask, is history just simply going to repeat itself over and over again or not? There is no doubt that at every point of this encounter between Boaz and Ruth, there is the opportunity and the potential for Boaz to do either what was right in his own eyes or what was right in God's eyes. Boaz can either spread out his cloak over her to take advantage of her 
or he can spread his wings over her and redeem her from her emptiness. The author is asking, what hope is there for a worthy woman who just happens to be the least in her society and in need of a redeemer? What hope is there to be presented before a worthy man, a man of honor, and for him to do what is right in God's eyes? And we read that Boaz is honorable. He is worthy. And he did, does not continue the horrific pattern of behavior. He is willing to do what Ruth asks of him. And so look again at, uh, with me at verse 9, what Ruth asks in verse 9. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth is asking him to become her redeemer. She's asking Boaz to take her hand in marriage. It's a marriage proposal of sorts to provide for her a place of security, a place where she can belong, a place where she doesn't have to be worried about being assaulted and worried about other people taking advantage of her. But also she's asking Boaz to provide offspring for her and to do this according to God's law. And it's really important for us to realize that if Boaz does what she's asking, he will not just be providing for Ruth, he will also be providing for Ruth's dead husband, and for Naomi, and Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. And we also need to realize that if he's willing to do what she's asking of him, it will come at a great cost to him. And so let's look again at Boaz's response in verse 10. He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. See, Boaz has seen and heard of the kindness that Ruth has already shown to Naomi, how she left her father and mother in a native land and come with her mother-in-law to people that she didn't know before. That was in chapter 2. And so the way that Ruth acted in kindness towards Naomi since the death of her husband has not gone unnoticed. And so not only has Naomi provided, sorry, Ruth provided Naomi with food, but now Ruth is also asking Boaz to redeem her and also redeem Naomi. And so, Booth, so Boaz here is uh, very aware of what Ruth is asking, and he points out this by saying that she could have gone after younger men, but instead of going after younger men, she has gone after one who can redeem both her and Naomi. And so Ruth's kindness here is towards Naomi. Her commitment is to Naomi. Boaz praises Ruth's kindness that is demonstrated in her obedience of Naomi. And so the author shows us here not only 
is Boaz honorable in the way that he acts? But also Ruth, likewise, is honorable in the way that she acts towards Naomi. And see, the Kingsman Redeemer law that was set up in the Old Testament for those who found themselves in this exact situation that both Naomi and Ruth found themselves in was done so to help those in need. But what I find most captivating is that the other account of the Kinsman Redeemer is very different to this account. See, in Genesis 38, we read about how Judah tells Onan to be a Kinsman Redeemer. And Onan takes advantage of his sister-in-law and he uses her for his own sexual pleasures rather than redeeming her as he should have. And the author here in Ruth is writing in the time when this type of activity would have most likely been very common. And this law, we know, can be used in a sinful manner. A law that God had set up to protect the poor and to protect those in need was being used to take advantage of them instead. And the author is reminding us of just how depraved humanity can be. This law used for selfish gain is a clear example for us of the messiness of our world and that this mess has serious consequences. But there is a solution because in Boaz, we see that the cycle of sin can be broken. The way that Ruth and Boaz observed this law points us to the redeeming love of God. This points us to God and how he shows us his loving kindness as it works out within them. Ruth finds a redeemer to spread his wings over her in marriage, but in this covenantal relationship, it is the Lord's wings that Ruth ultimately finds herself under. And to quickly finish the story, Boaz knows that he is a redeemer, but he, is also, he also knows that there is a redeemer that is closer than him. And so he tells Ruth to remain at her, his feet until morning. Boaz knows that it's not safe for her to go out in the middle of the night, and so Boaz tells her to stay. But he will not do anything until the matter is settled. And he promises in verse 13, he says, Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lay down until morning. In the morning, they both get up. Boaz gives her six measures of barley, which is a lot of barley. Ruth goes back home and tells Naomi everything that has happened. And the chapter concludes with the words of Naomi, where she says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. <coughs> and so as you read this book of Ruth, you may recognize within yourself some aspects found in the character of Naomi. 
You may be feeling bitter, lonely, empty, and even find yourself angry with God. You may identify more with Ruth as someone who is vulnerable and unsure of what the future may bring. Regardless of where you are or how you feel or the lot you have in life, we are all in need of a Redeemer. We need someone who is honourable, who is trustworthy. We need someone who can break this cycle of sin in this world and in our lives. We need somebody who is fundamentally different. One who is like Boaz, but we need somebody who is even better than Boaz. We need one who is better because in this story, Boaz redeems Ruth because she is a worthy woman. But would he have done it if she was unworthy? We need someone who will redeem the unworthy, who will redeem those who are empty. We need somebody who will redeem the, those redeem us because we can't do it ourselves. We can't break the cycle of sin. And this is exactly who we have in Jesus. Jesus is the one who sees your need and takes on the responsibility to redeem you from your emptiness, whatever the cost, and regardless of what you have done. In Romans chapter 5, we read that for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only does Jesus redeem us from our sin, but he also provides for us a future with our Father who is in heaven, a future hope. When our circumstances feel unbearably difficult, it is in him that we find our ultimate rest. And he will welcome all who ask and seek him. He says, I am always willing. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Because we are redeemed by his blood. At the cross. In this one act of mercy and kindness, God has once and for all time shown us the measure of his redeeming love. It has been present for all people for all time, and his redeeming love is evident here in this book of Ruth, through Boaz, who is obedient to the law of God to care for people like Ruth. His redeeming love is evident throughout the pages of the Bible as he brings his people time and time again back to himself. And his redeeming love is available and accessible to us now, for every one of us here today. So bring your requests to your Heavenly Father and say to him, 
I am your servant. Spread your wings over me, for you are my redeemer. Because when we do, we also have this great assurance. And this assurance is found in Philippians chapter 4, 19, where it says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray as we finish up. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us, to redeem us, even though we have done nothing to deserve it. We pray now as your servants, would you spread your wings over us, for you are our Redeemer. In your name we pray.